0: The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. Wherever you go, there you are. Confucius may have said it first, and John Kabat-Zinn titled his mindfulness book with these very powerful words. So many of us have the urge to run. Maybe we think that if we move to a different city or get a new job, find a new partner, we'll like ourselves more. But the truth is, yeah, change can be an extremely positive and beneficial tool. But we often realize that no matter the circumstantial change, we are still right there. In that new city, or working that new job, or laying beside that new person in that new bed, but not much has changed. Unless, of course, you actually work to build growth in one place and one place alone in your own self. We all know the overly self-helpy sayings like happiness is an inside job, or when things change inside you, things change around you. As much as some of these may sound overly simple or even trite, there is validity to them, and well, even science. A while back, there was a super interesting study done at Northwestern University and the University of Massachusetts. The researchers measured happiness levels between people that had won the lottery a year prior and victims that had been in a serious accident a year prior who were now paraplegic or quadriplegic. Seems like a pretty ridiculous study. We probably could all guess who rated being happier. If you guess the lottery winners, well, you're wrong the recent accident victims actually reported gaining more happiness from everyday pleasures than the lottery winners. And this is fascinating. Anyhow, more on that study and the science behind happiness in a later episode. Back to resiliency, greatly changing circumstances and recognizing that inside is where we really ought to be going. My guest on today's episode of Looking Up is Tina Marie Clark. She opens up about the good, bad, ugly, and holy crap beauty of it all. Tina Marie is a model, a mother, the creator of the shift Stirrer method, and my friend. She helps us learn that your personality, your problems, your mind, your neurosis are going to go with you pretty much everywhere you go until a whole bunch of real self-work is done. By building resiliency through her childhood in Section 8 housing, relying on food stamps, battling suicidal thoughts, getting kicked out of school, and using intimidation and aggression to cover up insecurity, she has been able to cultivate tools to find her inner strength, a passion that essentially saved her life, and in her words, get her shit together, to work her way out of negative routines and self-destructive cycles. We talk all about toxic positivity. Yeah, that's a thing this idea of optimism being an antibody, and of course, self-acceptance. Because what would looking up be without some good old-fashioned self-love? Hi. Hi, Be. I love you. Are you in
1: Ohio? I'm in Cincinnati. It's beautiful here, but it looks beautiful. it's beautiful and boring.
0: Well, that's what you need right now, to be honest. Which
1: is fine right now. Yes. I feel like the coronavirus is, was the antidote for FOMO. Yes you instantly like not wondering where people were or what they were doing because nobody was doing anything. Right. So you really got to dial back to yourself. And even though like I thought that I was going to get so much done, allowing myself to not get a lot done and just be okay with that, not shame myself or judge myself has been interesting. And the second that I let go of that pressure cooker, all of a sudden I started to like figure out what to do and get super excited about it. Being able to like kind of pivot for me has been cool.
0: Before we begin anything, the way looking up really starts is with a section that I like to call looking in. It's just a series of rapid fire questions that you don't have to think too much about, just whatever comes to mind. For those of you out there, I consider Tina Marie a good friend of mine and a colleague and all of that. But really, like, she's one of my friends. She's one of my girls. But I actually don't know some of the answers to these questions. So I'm excited to get a little intimate with you and to get to know you as a person in addition or outside of what some people may know you as from a professional standpoint. So without further ado, Tina Marie, can you tell me about a book or a quote or a piece of advice that has actually changed the way you live your life?
1: Yes. Thank you so much for having me on, by the way. Sorry, I just, that's not the rapid fire, but
0: no.
1: <laughs> John Cabot Zahn or Zahn or Zahn He has a quote or is recognized for his quote, wherever you go, there you are. Mm. And I always love that because it doesn't matter what car you drive, what house you're coming home to, no matter what is going on, Where even if you go on a vacation, wherever you go, there you are, your personality, your problems, your mind, your neuroses, everything is going to go no matter what happens on a material plane. So I really love that. And that was always like a big one for me.
0: I love how when I start this out, a lot of times this first question is like literally, it it dives into the core of what I want to speak to my guest about. And like that particular quote and the way you described it is what I'm hoping the meat of this podcast is going to be about. I really can't wait for everyone to hear about where you've come from, where you are and where you're going and how really through it all like there you are. So I can't Mm. wait for that. That's like the meat of what I really want to talk to you about. Of course, in addition to shift stir method. Okay. Second question. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually really blank. I
1: think that I'm like maybe a rich shopper (laughs) and I'm really, really very Thrifty, and I love Target and TJ Maxx, and and people like are so surprised because I'm like, oh my god, I got this at <laughs> TJ Maxx, and they're just so surprised. They think I get everything at like Bergdorf Goodman, which was that doesn't even excite me. Maybe a you know a bag or a pair of shoes from there, but I really love the hunt. So I'm very thrifty. I love Etsy. I love vintage. I love finding cool, rare pieces, and if it's not rare, it's you know a TJ Maxx or somewhere else.
0: I can attest to that about you because A we've been shopping together. B every time we've gone out and I've complimented your outfit and how it's put together, you could have a Bottega Veneta bag, but you're like this blouse is from Target or exactly. this dress is from TJ Maxx and this ring is from this vintage store back east. I definitely know that about you and I think it's amazing and it's really just comes down to you have style and it doesn't really, and it's back to like the quote that you just said, but anyways.
1: It's really funny you say that because it goes back to who you really are. Wherever you go, there you are. When I was a child, I was in fact poor and I didn't have financial means to buy expensive things, but I loved luxury items. So I would go to thrift stores and all that. So that hunting, gatherer, finding, sourcing (laughs) thing has come with me. Since I was really young, and it's just not going anywhere. It's a part of my personality and what gives me the excitement about what I get. So there I was, and here I am.
0: I love it. Okay, three words to describe yourself as a teenager during your high school years
1: afraid, intimidating,
0: Mm. and insecure. Hmm. Okay. Right now, how many unread emails do you have in your inbox?
1: I cannot even... It's probably over 10,000.
0: Okay. This one's really fun for me because everyone that I have been interviewing, which I could have guessed, was a zero inbox person. I am not. I am like a 30 30 plus thousand inbox person, but I actually could have guessed that that about you. So much better. I knew we were going to have that part in common. Listen...
1: A lot of things I am, and there's a lot of things I'm not. I am <laughs> exactly not what I do. Like I'm like that's just not not my shtick.
0: Okay, without much thought, this is the last one. Without much thought or judgment, three things that brought you joy today: my kids, concealer,
1: and being on the phone with you.
0: Ah, I love you. Okay, are you an optimist? I was
1: actually talking about this earlier. I feel like I'm a realist. But with an mm-hmm. optimistic twist, because I'm not like a, you know, even with everything going on in the world right now, I am not a doomsdayer and I'm not someone that doesn't, I'm not someone that thinks that they can go out without a mask. So I feel right. like I'm reasonable, but I do mm-hmm. have an undercurrent of optimism as a like internal guiding system or as an internal like antibody like my body protects itself by using optimism. So I don't know if that was cultivated or if it's naturally there, but I definitely use it to shift things.
0: I like your example of it with the antibodies. That's so cool. A lot of people kind of will describe themselves and a lot of people will say, well, I think I'm optimistic, but I have to like just caveat with the fact that I'm a realist. And I think that's so interesting because to me, someone who studied optimism for so long. I know that realism actually is included in optimism. And that's why so many times I think I'll meet someone and they'll say like, no, I don't think I'm an optimist. And then I'll really describe what an optimist is. And they're like, oh, maybe I am an optimist. And I would go as far as saying like, you can't really describe the word optimism without using this other word, resiliency. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of optimism is about working through struggle and persevering and growing through the less than ideal situations. And You don't know someone's true story or all their resiliency and growth to get to where they are. And I, in brief moments through your beautiful transparency and how easily, I'm sure it's not easy, but easily it appears for you, which is lovely to share where you've come from and your story. I would love for you to talk a little bit about if it feels comfortable for you about your childhood, really helping us to get to know who Tina Marie is and where she came from. Yes.
1: Thank you so much. I actually am excited you're asking me this because for so long, I have answered this question pretty uniform because I always say I grew up with a lot of shame because I knew I was... That being said, I really kind of dug into it and I'm like, wait, what if if I was poor and I had shame? There's tons of people that have had worse situations that don't identify with that. So, what really I would say, and what I've done with my family, and is identify that I inherited a lot of shame from my mother's interpretation of people's judgment of her and us mm. children. Mm. So it was always kind of on the back of, oh, it's because we're less than. I I think that me and my brothers always felt other. You know, we grew up below the poverty line. We grew up in Section Eight housing, so it was government aid mm-hmm. housing. We fed ourselves with. Food stamps. I was always like, go to the corner store and getting like popcorn or whatever. I was always using food stamps. But when I was using food stamps, I would always remember being very strategic in who was in the line and who was coming in back of me when I was paying.
0: Because Mm -hmm. I didn't want
1: it to be one of my friends from school or my teacher from school. And I lived in a small rural town outside of Philadelphia. So you knew a lot of the same people, and I had already felt so judged. My mom was 21. She had three children by the age of 21. Wow. So she was single. She had these crazy wild kids. She was just trying to keep her stuff together. And we stuck out like a sore thumb. So my mom's this young, hot blonde that loves like wearing short shorts. And we have she's (laughs) got like these three spunky, fiery kids. And (laughs) we just rolled into that town and we're like, we're here. (laughs) And people noticed and it was very easy to tell or I think I interpreted it as I wasn't enough and that we weren't enough. And it definitely disproportionately gave influence to Mm -hmm. influence or power or money or all of that. It was like, oh, you're okay. Like when, why wherever you go, there you are means so much to me is Even if when I was a child, somebody gave us a million dollars, it's like we would have still been those poor kids in our minds and our hearts that our world would have changed, but we would have still had to work through our stuff. And you can't get a car or a vacation to avoid yourself. It'll make you feel okay for a second, but it's not sustainable. And at the time when I was a child and I was going that way, I was... So to defend myself from the perceived threats of people judging me and my family, I became super defensive and creative. That was like my default defense to protect myself from being exposed. So it was, I'd rather someone fear me rather than actually know me because then you could actually judge that. I didn't give Mm -hmm. people much room to think anything other than like kids, I didn't really give them room to think any other than that they were afraid of me.
0: What are some of the things that you were doing to instill sort of this, I'm a badass, don't mess with me vibe? Well,
1: I was kicked out of from sixth to 12th grade. I was kicked out of five schools, landed me in six different alternative schools. So I was getting wow. expelled, I was always getting suspended throughout. That and then they eventually are like, okay, she's too wild for us. Send her to the next level. Send mm. her to the next level. And then I finally found the place that worked for me, and I'm so thankful for them because they really, they saw through my stuff. And they're like, okay, I I know you're throwing chairs. I see you, baby girl, but you're just hurt. <laughs> and then when you're ready, and you want to talk about it, uh, we're going to be here. So I'm so thankful to my teachers and principal at Lakeside. that's in Pennsylvania, that they really were able to see through my pain and see that I was just really hurting and really in a lot of pain.
0: And was there like a shift then? Like when you had some perceived support or even it sounds like maybe some help with people, someone, at least one person kind of like taking off the shield and being like, I see you inside and you're hurting. Was there some sort of shift that changed behavior for you? Or did it take a lot longer than that? And that was just the beginning. It took
1: a lot, but that in combination with at 15 years old, I signed my first modeling contract. Those Mm -hmm. happened simultaneously. So I was able to work through some of my stuff and be able to even have the confidence to go on a open call to become a model because I always knew that that's what I was. In essence, I like my grandmother said that I walked out of the womb a model and I believe <laughs> it because I just I knew could see that I was like, no, no, no. I know who I am. I know what I do. I know what I like. Modeling was definitely uh, a way for me to filter that. But modeling also really, I say that it saved my life because, and it's interesting because other people have different experiences where they're like, Oh, like modeling for me, it was such an empowering thing because it was the one thing that I wanted more than anything. And it was the one thing that wouldn't allow me to turn away from facing my stuff. Mm. If you have shame about money and about power, just become a model. (laughs) Because <laughs> you are going to be around and be touching and, you know, armoring up. Like and when you were saying, oh, the shield, like I was armoring up with my default defenses and you can't wear a shield when you're in Chanel. Right. I had to take off that shell and become a softer, more delicate version of myself and try that on in essence, emotionally. So me even getting glimpses and pockets of time where I could step away from that identity and see myself as soft and beautiful and nice, which was actually my true nature without the stuff. Right. So being reintroduced, to that. And embodying that gave me this entry point where I was feeling really good in that world. And I had built Mm -hmm. up these years of being such a, you know, a bulldozer. And now I could have a completely different identity while I was working. So those old defenses that I use to protect myself, you, (laughs) I love this one, you can run, but you can't hide. So yes, it, and it's yes. in essence, wherever you go, there you are. Because you can run from your stuff, but your stuff will find you.
0: Well, I love that so much because this is almost to me like your anthem. This is like your core. It's like the quote you chose. You can run, but you can't hide. And then like something that's so integral to your shift method is owning your own awful. yes. And it was part of your evolution to get where you are to be challenged in that way and to be thrown in. Thrown in. To like nothing could have been, yes. I think that's amazing. Having said that and talking about it, what was your first modeling job? This is a good
1: one. I actually got in trouble on my first modeling job. I'll never forget it. (laughs) Tell us about it. uh, What is it? Chrissy, Chrissy Evans. She was a model in Philadelphia at the time. And it was my first runway show. And
0: are you 15 at the time or a little older? No, 15. 15
1: first job straight out of the gate. It was, I was so excited. I had an uh, agent named Agnes Green at Reinhardt in Philadelphia. And she was this little old lady that just looked like a redhead Cruella DeVille, but super (laughs) thin, so fabulous. She told me exactly what to do. Like she loved me, but she was just, she absolutely loved me. So I eventually... But when I first <laughs> got this job, I went to the casting, did my runway walk, got the booking, went to the job and in the back of the runway, everybody was getting ready and trying on shoes. This was something that I didn't know. I thought, okay, they have the dresses here and they have the shoes here. Like I'll, I know what my rack is for clothes, but I don't know, you know, I'll just pick a shoe that works. So I go over and pick a shoe and unbeknownst to me, it's actually people, models in Philadelphia at the time, they bring their own shoes. So I took this pair of shoes from this girl and I didn't know. And I thought she was, because I was like programmed to be defensive and combative, I like freaked out on her and told her to like, you know... F off. And these are my shoes. And you're like, probably saying like, you're just jealous because I picked the best ones or like <laughs> I, I, thinking of my 15 year old self, that was yeah. pretty, pretty common for me. So I get into this confrontation and then I absolutely knock that runway show out of the park. I remember it was like Philadelphia magazine was there. And uh the inquiry, and it was just like a really big moment for me. It was right out of the gate. I was like kicking butt. And I wake up the next day, think nothing of it, and it's my agent. And I remember like ans- answering the phone really giddy because I thought she was gonna say, like, oh my gosh, the inquirer yeah. is picking this up, or oh, you did really great, or the client loves you. But she basically she handed <laughs> me some really wise words and basically said, this is your first and last time you will ever do anything like that on a job ever. So I was really lucky to have that experience right out of the gate because Mm -hmm. it trained me to always go to work professionally. And I knew that even when weird stuff happened, I need to act like the girl I want to be, not the girl I am. And when I started trying that on and doing that, then that became, eventually, that became what I naturally
0: did. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I will never forget that feeling.
0: What I keep hearing, and I hear this a lot with people that are building their resiliency and that have worked through struggle and, and worked at it really quickly and things come like their resiliency muscle is has been built. And so it continues to be able to be built even faster through scenarios. The common thread is like your grit. So the fact that like, sure, you could have been told, you could have been presented with something and at such a young age, but you actually had the audacity and the grit to do something different than what you were currently doing at 15. So it's pretty rare and it's phenomenal and it's extremely inspiring. So it's like exactly what I'm excited to share with listeners. And I'm sure all of those experiences really brought you to the life you are in now and also are propelling you forward with everything that you're doing with Shiftster or method. Would you say, at, because we're talking about resiliency, would you say that that time sort of the around 15 or pre-15 were... were if you had to pick a time period in your life where you had the most struggle or it was the darkest period, would it have been that time or was, was there something after?
1: 14, 15. I feel so separate from this now because I can't even imagine saying it. And there's nothing uh, shameful about it, but I, I tried to commit suicide twice and I was institutionalized twice. Wow. And when I think of that girl, when you asked me, oh, how would you describe that girl? I was just really suffering and I, I didn't want to die. I just wanted that, that um, I wanted to stop stirring. That's really mm. what I wanted. I wanted peace and I could not figure out how to make that emotional suffering stop. I didn't want to not live. I just didn't want to live in that much pain. I couldn't endure yeah. it. And I felt like that was my only way out. And me looking at, I remember and am and, and in tune with what I was thinking and how I was thinking and, and how overwhelmed I was at that time. But when I think of who I am today and that 14 year old girl, I'm like, I don't even, I'm so thankful that I don't know you anymore. I don't have Mm. contact with that, that pain, that level of pain anymore. Just knowing that I know that that was real. And I know that that was, oh, like it took over my entire world. My, my body, my mind, everything was just sad and brokenhearted and suffering So to, to look at that and remember it, but still feel so separate from it in a way, I'm like, oh, it feels, Mm -hmm. and obviously it was a lifetime ago. It was a really long time ago, but that's my story and that's my truth. And that's, it. I just, that was this way or, or I was in that much pain. I really tried to kill myself and I'm like, yeah, it was, those were dark, dark, dark times. I would have done anything to stop that pain.
0: Well, it sounds like you did, which then makes me want to ask what helped you, you know, what tools did you develop over all these years? And besides the modeling piece, did you have support? Was it familial? Was it friends? Was it everything? Give us the like, what helped you get out of that?
1: It was my mom. My mom started this journey when she became pregnant. So she says that my brother actually saved her life because if she didn't get pregnant at such a young age, that she would have been a train wreck because so young, she had to realize that she had these three little kids that were looking up to her and she couldn't afford to mess up. So I guess that idea was always in my wheelhouse of like being able to shift your perception of your circumstances. Mm -hmm. I always had my mom when I was going through, I was in a stir and I was going crazy and like so upset at the end of a conversation, my mom would say, babe, I know you think this is about X. But I promised you this is about you. Mm. And that would feel liberating and creating all at the same time. Because I had such evidence that it was them, because I just laid out all of this evidence that they're wrong. Right. But then it was so liberating because I'm like, wait, if it's not them and they can't change, if it's possible that this is really my my doing inside of my mind, then that means that there's a chance that I can change it, even if right. the outside doesn't change. Right. So I was introduced to that. And it, like you said, change is really hard. So I heard that hundreds of times before I could even start to Think of that and have the maturity to even know like, you know you I have hormones, I have you know I was drinking and doing everything and you know hooking up with guys. I was like using anything to like make me feel better, so that combination, I wasn't really necessarily able to think about it clearly as I got older, I was really able to implement what I had shown, really in essence. And we can read statistics about positivity, but it's until right. we see the exchange or the feeling or the frequency or the result of why we use positivity for us to to build that. Like we have to see that our body flows, or our immune system is better, or or our conversations are better. We have to see the result, and I think that that was big for me, yes. where I got to see that and my kids. Are obviously going to know those things, just noticing, I would say.
0: Yeah. And being, I think, like the most powerful form of teaching kids is modeling. Mm-hmm. And whether it's intentional or not, that's how our kids learn. And I hear from so many people, like kind of like what your mom had told you, you know, if it wasn't for, your brother. I wouldn't have, I don't, I think I'd be a train wreck because she started doing things differently because she had this person to live for and start to model better behavior for. All of this leading up to the shifter method. Can you share what the method is, how you came about it? And your? I could just like now after everything, I just like, I have a vision of your mom just like, reading and being so in it and so proud of you, but also like using the method. We I actually use it on it. each other.
1: We like, yeah, yeah we will, that. we'll just say my mom called me and, and we were talking. She was like, I was in the sit and I was actually sifting at the same time. Do you ever do that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. She's like, we need another word for that. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's a good one. Like when you're halfway in, So yes, my mom and I really do. It just gives language and words to the things that we had always been doing. The method had gone unmethodized for so long. Since I was 15, we had been cultivating these tools that worked. And I just had the luxury of, I feel like I kind of got picked because I feel like the second that I was quote unquote ready, it came down to me. I was not thinking I was going to be an author or have a method. I just feel like I had been doing a lot of the back work to see what lit me up. And these topics just set me on fire. And then once I was ready, it came down and it said, okay, the first day it was, okay, you're a shift stir. And what is a shift stir? shift stir? is someone who can stir shifts. They can create it. They can use movement to create shifts in their life. Are we all shifters? Absolutely. We have like we're all shifters. We're we're, we're yes. shifters for other people and we're shifters for ourselves.
0: Can you just very briefly go through the five okay. s's in the so method? the
1: five uh, the shiftster method is a five step method to shift your perception. The first step is the stir which is recognizing you've deviated into a negative thought pattern. Two is the sit. Sit without any outward reaction, without trying to alter or judge your feelings for 24 hours. Then there's the sift. The sift is where you really do a deep dive into your subconscious and your conscious mind to identify the thoughts and narratives that, Created the stir to begin with. What is the story your mind told you that action or inaction meant? Really extrapolating that and getting deep into it and what the core of that is. A lot of the times, it's not what you presuppose. You think you're mad at your boyfriend, but you're really actually mad at your dad. And the sift is where you can kind of see where where you went in the rabbit hole. Then there is the share. That's where we own our awful and share with other women. It's, uh, the shiftster method is predominantly women. So it's sharing unapologetically, owning your awful. And when I'm, what I mean by awful, it's not that it's actually awful. It's what we've deemed in our mind less than acceptable. None of this is awful at its core. It's just the thing that we'd like to hide, the thing that we want to, we're ashamed of or we, want to, we wouldn't want people to know. Like it could be something as simple as, I'm always yelling at my kid. Or like if, if somebody hears me and I'm like, you know, I have a rushed voice. It's like, I wouldn't prefer that. I'd prefer to keep that to myself. But when I'm calling a girlfriend and I tell her like, oh, I really, you know what? I'm really, I'm a little short with my husband after a long day, he comes home and I just get so mad at him. And I just, I don't like that energy between us, but I just, I'm mean to him. And you, and you, and you kind of go through it and you own your awful. And so it's
0: like taking responsibility responsibility.
1: and it's not good or bad or anything. It's just showing up and showing what part you played in this exchange. That's really amazing. And uh, then there's the shift. That's where you really are able to the four steps before were unearthing bit by bit what is really going on, and at the end you're really coming out the end a different person. You can't unring a bell like you're going to unpack layers that you just didn't know about yourself, and sometimes they're world-transforming, and some and sometimes it could just be like, oh, I didn't know that, and then you get up and you do it again. Right. It's really a, a deepening and a intimacy. And resilience builder, I would say within yourself, doing the work, asking yourself the hard questions, having a method and a way that I process my stirs has been great for me because I don't have to wonder. I don't have to have anxiety about, oh, what am I going to do? I'm like, oh, I just used the method.
0: It's like, okay, where am I right.
1: in the process? Wait, am I still stirring or am I willing to sit?
0: I think that is such a powerful and simple point putting aside and chucking out the fear in anything that you have to go through, whether it's a small moment or big, because you know, I'm never going to not know what to do. I can always go through the method. So it's like having a tool in your toolbox, whatever that tool is for you. Some people, it can be your breath. For some people, it can be tools you learned in therapy. For other people, it can be dancing. Whatever it is, it is your tool. And I think like we often forget that why having tools are so important. A lot of us go through life like, well, I'm so scared if X, Y, and Z happens and that builds up in our negative emotion because I'm not gonna know what to do. So just having tools, whatever they are, is a really great way to remove that extra layer or piece of going through something of a struggle. And I think that's so cool that that you said that. And it makes so much sense to me how you worded it of just like it kind of doesn't matter what happens or what's thrown at me um because i no longer i'm going to be like oh my god holy shit what do i do i know i'm just going to go through the method.
1: and it gives me a sense of control cuz when you're you're feeling out of control you're like okay well what if i can't control them and i can't i don't even know what that is what is my part in this and how can i get this of okay how can i make myself feel okay right now and that are not destructive patterns and are not things that are going to destroy my life. And I had used so many of those bad things all along. I'm like, wait, no, no, I need real coping skills, not bad ones. I need real, like my default defense needs to become, I do the method. And I have integrated that into my my daily, I have to go through it sometimes, you know, big stirs, sometimes little ones, like somebody cutting me off on the road. And I'm like, whoa, girl, right. Just really curse. Like, oh, you must be stern. What do you, what do you think that guy was thinking? And and, and I go back and I'm like, oh my God, I just said like, bitch, I'm from Philly. You don't know me. You just had like an ego trip, (laughs) TM, like having to like call myself out. You just had an ego trip. You think that that person is trying to like, challenge your being in the youth. Like, really? Did you just do that? And you get to like chuckle at yourself. And you're like, wow, that really drastically shifted my energy. I was really outside of myself because I had really just, you know, imagined that this guy was trying to challenge me. And they're probably not thinking about that. But in my mind, I went there.
0: The more practical everyday usable tools out there, there are that resonate with you that just simply work to slow things down. And as Tina Marie says and hers is to sit and sort of go through it. Even like literally if you believe a tool or you don't believe a tool or something works or it doesn't, just anything that makes you slow down. down and think about something and let it marinate within yourself before you react is a positive tool that helps with joy and resiliency and decreases anxiety and stress and all these things. And so it also... Will help save you from creating behaviors and and taking part in actions that you really yes, regret.
1: Absolutely, that's why I I needed this sit because I was creating such chaos in my life from being so reactive that even if I had a valid point, the level in which I like showed or expressed or reacted what that person did was completely overshadowed and like dwarfed anything in comparison to what i just did. Mm-hmm. 9 times out of 10 the sit is an emotional posture a physical posture you don't you can i'm i sit at you know dinner tables with people i will sit while i'm you know at the grocery store walking the sit is an emotional right. posture that you you are Actively with intention. And that's the key thing. I am sitting because there's something I don't know here. I am open to allow myself to feel this because I'm not afraid of this. And that's really what reminds me about toxic positivity because I actually feel what I've learned is a lot of the time, toxic positivity is not wanting to experience
0: shame. Absolutely. And it's it's, it's avoidance. So it's
1: like, oh, I don't have to really deal with this or the depth of this or the depth of your emotion. So when I tell you something like, oh well, it'll be fine or oh well you you know life is life and you
0: know just think of good, oh, vibes, good vibes
1: only. Th- no 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 babe I'm like
0: oh that I cannot welcome.
1: <laughs> all vibes are welcome. Because guess what? I want to fall in love with a full human being, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what makes us all. And I was going, I see the pendulum swing with this toxic positivity. And I see people just, you know, just smile and breathe. And that those things are great. But when you're using them to protect yourself and avoid the realities of your life, you are not growing. And you could douse things with positive affirmations, but when you don't truly fundamentally process what's really going on by owning your awful and deep diving into what's going on, You can run, you can't hide your stuff will reveal itself and it will reveal itself in the most painful, obscure, bizarre, beneficial way for you to make the change. So you can douse it with, Oh, you know, smile or breathe, or that does not, or an Instagram filter. Exactly. Exactly. Or even just pretending that you're always positive. I'm like, I won't do that to other women or or a happy wife or a happy mom all the time. I'm like, no, a lot of it is. A lot of it is, but a lot of it isn't. And that's what makes it beautiful. But I will not, I believe it is a disservice to other women when we do not own awful, especially about being a mom and being a wife and being a woman. It is a disservice for yes. me not to share what's really going on on some level. I get it. You don't have to talk about every single it, everything doesn't need to be transparent. But when I see people engaging in toxic positivity, it just it also keeps them closed off because there's no entry point for connection
0: at all. Yeah.
1: This is where it really hit for me. Toxic positivity. When I, so I gained 72 pounds with my son Max, the entire time, I really had no idea that I, that I had gained that much. I was so happy. I was euphoric. I had the best pregnancy. I was in high heels till the end. I just was that weird chick that loved being pregnant. And I had him and I remember like packing these size two pair of like pants as if I was going to walk out of a hospital, like wearing them. Because everybody was like, oh no, girl, you're just, it's just going to fall right off. Well, it didn't. And (laughs) I don't know why I thought 72 pounds was just going to fall off, but it didn't. And I remember afterwards, I remember not liking my body. And I noticed that there was programming and toxic positivity about like pressuring me to be okay that it was the evolved version or the loving version of Tina Marie if she could accept her body as it was. Do you get what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I, I for me, I I felt like less evolved and like I would, I, I felt shamed that I would want to be something other than what i was because i would hear things mm-hmm. like well you're you're just you should be lucky that you even were able to give birth so many people can't
0: like you felt judged for wanting to go back to yes. your body pre-pregnancy and when people were just like, you should be
1: happy or just accept it. And you, um, you know, it, it takes a year to put on, it takes a year to take off or, oh, you, you should just love yourself and be compassionate with yourself and really do self-love practices. And it just, my self-love came through me honoring and owning the quote unquote awful Mm. part of me that felt better, more confident, and more me when I fit in my clothes. That was me mm-hmm. owning my awful. It wasn't owning the fact that I was big. It was owning the fact that I like to be small. And it was scary because I was expected to uh, like own where I was. And I was like, no, that's not the truth for me.
0: Right. And you wanted to be unapologetically yourself and who you felt was true to yourself and not feel guilty about it. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to that particular scenario where it's almost like you're being reversed. Absolutely. It's contrarian. Also, and also like, yeah, it's contrarian. It's also going against the grain. We are judged for being overweight, but we're also judged for being underweight. And then we're judged for when we put on weight and we're pregnant, but then we're also judged for wanting to lose the weight. And then we're like, it's just that the whole idea of weight for women is a very charged topic. And I think it's interesting that you got to a place where you said, listen, I hear all of you and I don't give a shit. I need to honor myself. And that, that's self-love
1: that's knowing oneself.
0: Well, I will say that a common thread in all of this is you are someone that has very clear goals and you're actually really good at executing them. So that's pretty amazing. What is looking up? So what are you most excited about? I know that you talked about, uh, the method going online and that's I'm so, amazing. So excited, I'm sure that is what's looking up and what all of us can be excited about? When is that happening? And then also what just generally are you hopeful about?
1: Actually, don't. that's a good question. So let, let me tell you about what's looking up. I'm doing an online course for the shift method. So people will get really a deep dive into how to apply the method stories that I've told about how I am able to execute each step and also other people's stories. So I'm excited to do that and have it be intellectually versus experientially. It's really important to be able to offer that. So it will be a companion to the book. And one thing that is, that I'm looking forward to, actually this next year, I would say like there's really so much uncertainty, but there's like cool uncertainty because I don't feel so, Mm -hmm. Tied to New York City at the moment. My business is changing so much. So there is like a lot of excitement. It's not really anxiety.
0: Yes. So the last thing we do on looking up is if we were together, you would have picked your own card. I know you're familiar with the things we're looking up, Optimism Deck of Cards. I'm going to pick a card for you, and that is your homework for the day. So, random card. This one's yours. Oh, you got the rainbow. Beautiful. All right create a space for something joyful that you are looking forward to doing and get it on your calendar. Now, this can be big or small, something that takes five minutes or an entire day. So think about something, get it on your calendar, actually execute it and let me know what it is when you do it. Treat yourself. I
1: actually have something big that I I may text you after we get off Okay, I, I think I may have something big that I would love to put on the calendar.
0: Okay. I love that. I loved, I loved this. I loved catching up with you. Thank you so much for being Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Mwah. Thanks so much for listening to looking up for more optimistic content. Follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra for more info and how to get your very own things are looking up optimism deck of cards, head to things If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate review and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.